Good morning. Please be seated. I'll read our scripture lesson this morning and then we'll, we'll dismiss the kids. We are in John chapter 7. John chapter 7 is where we will be. We're going through verse 18 this morning. John chapter 7 verses 1 through 18. I'm reading from the ESV, English Standard Version. We have some in the back. If you don't have one, you can grab one. It's what we usually preach from the ESV. There are other good translations out there, but got to land on one. So that's where we are. John 7, the gospel according to John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Chapter 7, verse 1. I say it several times because I know all the guys here are like, what did he say? John chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one open, no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brother had gone up to the feast, verse 10, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And the Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some people said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he is leading people astray. Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. Verse 14, about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this that this man has learning when he had never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Verse 18 to close. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. We'll stop there. God had a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Okay, kids, you're dismissed. Children's Church, while the rest of us are in chapter 7. It's a beautiful account, the gospel according to John. We've been studying it, written by an eyewitness, inspired by the Holy Spirit, but written uh, by John the Apostle, an eyewitness of the perfect life, the ministry the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, John tells us at the end of the gospel account that he had carefully chosen what to write, what not to write, as he watched Jesus, he listened to Jesus, as the Holy Spirit brought to remembrance all that Jesus had said and taught. In fact, John says at the end of his gospel account that if he wrote down everything that Jesus did, the whole world couldn't contain its books. But these things, he says, I've written to you. What I've written to you in this account is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. John 20. Know that verse, 30, 31, chapter 20. 
that Jesus is the Christ. That's the purpose of the book. To believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Son of, of the same nature of God. And believing in him, you may have life. That's eternal life in his name. The purpose of the gospel, according to John, is not simply to believe in the sense of the initial right of coming to faith in Jesus, but he uses the verb believing, meaning that it is a continual thing for us. It is not just the entrance into the kingdom. It is an ongoing thing for believers to keep on believing. That's why it's a verb. Trusting in, walking in, acting upon, and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. This book is not just for beginners, although we love to give that book out to new people who come to faith in Jesus. We're seeing that here at King's Chapel. We're seeing people coming to faith, seeing people growing in faith. To God be the glory. But this morning, as we continue this book, what we're going to see this morning is, is, is Jesus exposing in his teaching some reasons why some people have not come to faith, have not grown in faith, have not come to understand and believe on who Jesus really is. And I say that this morning knowing, and I want you to know, that when God reveals this hardness of heart, which he will, the reason we are not believing, he is doing it because he loves you. He's, re- he's revealing his glory, he's calling us by his grace into a forgiven and a healed relationship with him. That's my prayer this morning, as God shows us some things about ourselves, that we are humbly uh, willing to, to, to step into and to receive his grace and his love into our lives. He wants to bring us to faith in him, he wants to continue to strengthen us through the word of God. Not just transferring us into the kingdom from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, but being strengthened by his word and keep on believing in him. Last week, Pastor Ricky did a great job wrapping up chapter six. There's a lot in that chapter. Notice in your Bibles, though, as we switch from chapter six to chapter seven, it opens up with these words, after this. See that? After this. It's a general phrase used with no indication of of exact time amount. It's, a, it's an indeterminate amount of time what, is what John is saying. And we know from chapter 6, verse 4, that that whole chapter, chapter 6, with the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, um, it, it was done during the season of the Passover. Chapter 6, verse 4. Season of the Passover. And we said that Jesus showed himself to be the true and better Moses who gave bread from heaven and the manna from heaven came down. And Jesus is that bread. He is the one who gives life, not just life sustenance for the day, but eternal life that he's given to the world. That he's the true and better Moses. As they reflected on this Passover, that they recognized that Moses, maybe have, Moses had delivered them from the Red Sea, but Jesus walked on the water. And then Jesus, in his closing remarks of chapter 6, talks about eating and drinking. Eating his flesh, drinking his blood, is the only way to have food that is sustenance for eternal life. We said that that means to eat and to drink of Jesus, means to come to him, to believe in him, to digest him, to trust him. And now in chapter 7, we see a change. It is no longer the feast of the Passover, but it's the feast of booths. Some of your Bibles might have tabernacles. It's another name for the same feast. So though it says after this, an indeterminate amount of time, chapter 6 to chapter 7, 
we know from the context that it went from the Passover to the Feast of Booths, to the Feast of Tabernacles. It's about six months. All right? John doesn't see anything about it. It's not important to him at the moment. He's writing, like as I said, he's got a particular purpose in mind, and the six months ministry that he just skips over, Galilean ministry, a lot had happened. You can read it in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Synoptic similar. A lot had gone on in this Galilean ministry, but what John wants to do is take us from the feeding of Passover to the Feast of Booths, and that's what he says in verse 1, that he went about in Galilee and not in Judea, although the time is around the Feast of Booths. Now look what it says also uh, in, in context, that the Jews were seeking to kill him. Okay? If you remember from our study from the very beginning, we said that Jesus' ministry, his three years roughly ministry, was broken up to three parts. You had the year of inauguration, his baptism. You had the year of inauguration when he was tempted in the wilderness. Then you had the near popularity. Again, roughly a year. Crowds and crowds and crowds began to form and follow Jesus. And then his last year has been called the year of opposition. Many scholars believe it began when John the Baptist's head got chopped off. Makes sense. Seems like a little opposition when heads are rolling around. I, that's pretty, pretty opposed to what Jesus is saying, right? And, and, and last week, which Ricky preached on, was that many people just heard and just got up and left. Jesus is honing in, and he's, you know, he's, the, the, the herd is, is thinning as Jesus begins to teach and preach, and, and the cross is looming. And people are opposing. So our text is in, in the midst of this year of opposition. In fact, Jesus will leave Galilee and head toward Jerusalem, and he will not return back home. Physically, anyway. After his resurrection, the Pentecost will come, the Spirit will be given, and the presence of Jesus and the power of Jesus will be worldwide. Luke chapter 9, around the same time, it says, verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I want you to feel that. That's what's going on. So our text this morning, really four simple things. The setting, we'll look a little more at the setting, it's important. The siblings, the searching and the seeking. Number one. Heading number one, the setting. Look what it says, verse one. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, north part of Jerusalem, it's north of Jerusalem. He would not go about in Judea where Jerusalem is because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the booth was at hand. We're gonna talk about the feast of the booth in a minute. But I want you to see what John is doing. It's subtle, but I want you to see it. When John mentions the Jews... We're seeking to kill him in Judea, seeking to kill him. He's connecting, you could turn in your Bibles if you want, to John chapter 5, verse 18. That's where Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day. That's where Jesus called God his own father, making himself equal with God. It went from persecuting Jesus to wanting to seek to kill him. They wanted him dead, right? Not mostly dead. They wanted him dead. And The text here, John is saying, although this happened a while ago, this whole Sabbath healing situation that happened, that they went from seeking him, calling him his own father, to wanting him dead, 
is, is now brought over into chapter 7. Jesus will deal with it. We're not going to look at it today. We don't have time. With this whole Sabbath healing that really got him fired up in the first place and wanting him dead. We'll, we'll look at that next week. But John wants us to connect that, those dots, and I want to connect it for you. Now, as I'm studying this, I'm thinking, really? That was so long ago. Jesus had left the region for months, and they were still angry about it. And I thought, how many times does anger, resentment, hatred fester in our hearts? Hebrews 12, 15 teaches us that this bitterness, this hatred, this animosity are like roots in a tree that, that go deep into the soul, into the heart of man. And when it pops up its ugly head, it defiles, it, 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 it pollutes, it troubles and stains, is the word used in Hebrews, countless of people all around us. Unbridled anger. Unbridled anger. Not getting what we want at the moment can cause an explosion in our lives. Not getting what we think we need to survive. When, when our personhood is in question, when our values as a person is attacked, when our purposes are maligned, it happens when we worship idols and things that are not meant to be worshipped and someone tries to dismantle and take that idol from us, there is explosive anger. Take the alcoholic drink away. Stand in the way of that promotion that you know you deserve and you need to feel successful and significant and valued. Try to stop the person on a shopping spree. <laughs> if, they, if their need to buy and to have connects them to what they really believe themselves they need to have, you'll get anger. But what if our personhood, what if our value and purpose were God-centered, Christ-exalting? What if the glory of God, his value, his treasure, was prominent and preeminent and, and the pinnacle of, of all that we are and all that we do? Then nothing can rob us of our value and our significance when it's in Christ. That's what this passage is all about. You see, the religious leaders were being threatened. They were not going to sit around idly by. They, they were followers of the law. They got their, their significance by, by doing what they thought was right and the accolades of it. And they didn't like this itinerant preacher coming and, and pushing them around. They wanted him dead. Who is he? And we're going to see that again. Now it says that during this time that the Jews' feast of booths was at a hand. Was at hand. The feast of booths, tabernacle, I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but it's one of the three mandatory feasts that all the Jewish people, uh, males, had to uh, attend. They were the mandated mandatory to go to Jerusalem. It happens around September, October. Um, in the Old Testament, you'll find in Leviticus 12, Deuteronomy 16, it's the gathering of the harvest, not the grain, but the olives, and the, um, what is it, olives and the, uh, let me see, I got it in my notes somewhere, I wrote it down. 
olives. Oh, and the grapes. So it was a, it was a harvest of grapes, harvest of, of, of olives, the Feast of Booths, the tabernacle was right after the, uh, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, when the, that yearly sacrifice was right after that. So there's this, there's this festivity time of, of worship and, and thanksgiving and redemption. It's, it's a festival time of being renewed and, and being reconciled with God. It's also the conclusion of the cycles of feasts. So it was the third of the final feast of the year. So you have the Feast of Passover, which March, April, Feast of Pentecost, about seven days later, and then they had the Feast of Booths. Now, I say that all because it's a great study. We don't have time to do that. We'll look at it a little bit more next time we, we get around this text, that Jesus fulfills the feast. If you look at the, each one of the feasts and what they represent, you'll see Christ all over. Here, very important, the Feast of Booths. It was a time when Israel would come together and they would remember God's faithfulness. They would remember God's provision in the wilderness experience while they were wandering around. It was seven days long, ending on an eighth day with a a final assembly of celebration. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says it's one of the most celebrated feasts of all. Um, Maybe you know about this feast. If not, let me just tell you something that's important. A couple of things. One is they would gather around these booths. That's why it's called booths and tabernacles. They would build these, these I, I call them cool forts. I used to live in Rockland County. I used to have them. I lived in a Jewish community. Um, they looked like cool forts in the backyard. They would build these boxes with these leaves, and they were booths. They were to show uh, uh, and be reminded of God's faithfulness as he provided shelter and, and food and stuff for them while they were on the wilderness. So they would build them. And in the city, they would build them on the rooftop or maybe in the back you know, courtyard. In the rural places, they would be all over the place. And so I want you to picture that. They're in Jerusalem, and you have these booths everywhere, these makeshift forts with, with branches on them. During this time, there was a, a, um, a trumpets being blown. There was a water rite ceremony, which we're going to see in chapter 7, verse 37. There was a lighting of a candle. We're going to see that in John chapter 8. I'm the light of the world. So all this Jesus is tying in to this wonderful festival of booths, a glorious time. It was actually also a time in which Israel, and this is important, I'm just laying it out, we'll look at this more as we go on. It was also a very important time for Israel as they waited and expected the coming kingdom. Okay? It was an expectation of end times that God is going to restore the nation. Okay? Zechariah chapter 14. He says, there will be a time when everyone who survives... Tribulation of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. Now, if you're a premillennial, if that means anything to you, if not, that's okay. That's during the thousand-year reign. If you're an Amil guy, that's the end time. But either way, the point is, in the end, during this new season, this new exodus, There was going to be this festival time, this anticipation of this coming Messiah and king and ruler and establishing of a final kingdom, okay? So I want you all to catch this, okay? It's a city crowded with people, packed, booths everywhere, festivals going on, sacrifices going on, 
joy of redemption going on, expectation of the final uh, consummation of the kingdom coming on, waiting for the Messiah, waiting for the new kingdom. There's a party going on in Jerusalem. I, I like that. That's why I spend time on it. Because God's people, it's okay to party. It's okay to have joy. It's okay to celebrate the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what this setting is all about. Now look at the siblings. So, verse 3, his brothers said to him, leave here, go to Judea, Jerusalem, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. Now, if you're from the tradition that Mary, the mother of Jesus, Virgin Mary, did not have any children, I'm sorry to tell you, you were taught inaccurately. Mary and Joseph had other children. The idea that Mary was this perpetual virgin is not biblical. And it was taught by other traditions because of her false view, a false exaltation view of heaven, and this idea that sexual intimacy has somehow made her unclean. Actually, the Bible speaks against that. Okay? It speaks against that. Sex... Sexual intimacy is good, it's right, it's obligatory in the context of marriage, covenant marriage. In Matthew 13, 55, Jesus is home, he's in his hometown, he's teaching in the synagogue, and the leaders say, where did this man get this wisdom from, these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother Mary, stepfather, mom? Are not his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? Are there not all his sisters here with us as well? Context is clearly Jesus' other brothers and sisters. His half-brothers, his half-sisters, okay? So here we see Jesus' own family urging him, his brothers urging him, go to Jerusalem, go to Jerusalem. Look what it says for the reason. So that other people may see the works you are doing. Underline that. that, that should, you, you should go, oh, I heard that before. I've heard that somewhere in this, in, this, in this gospel account. I've heard that before. Wonder seekers and sign followers. Yes, you have. Many times. John speaks about it often. In fact, all the way back in chapter 2, John says this, that Jesus did not believe their believing. He saw the, the crowds follow him because of the miracles in which he performed. And he said he did not entrust himself to them. He knew that just miracle signs and just people believing because of, of the wonders that Jesus did was not trustworthy. His brothers were following him and saying, go, show them the works you do. Look at verse four. No one, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. Jesus, go ahead, miracle worker, dance for us. Show us some signs, you know, turn, turn the, the, the rock into water and, and throw the stars up in the sky. Do something for us. Let the world know how good you are. Not let the world know who you are, but let the world know what you can do. That's what he's saying. Be that miracle man. Listen, Jesus, if you want to be influential, if you want to have power and prestige in this world, you've got to go where the crowd is. There's a party going on in Jerusalem. That's where you need to go. I mean, that's, that's what they're urging him to do. Now, family, look what it says in verse 5. For not even his brothers believed in him. What? 
after the resurrection, James and Jude, his half-brothers, will believe. James becomes a, a leader in the Jerusalem church. James and Jude will both write epistles in our New Testament. But here it says they're urging him to go, show himself, is unbelief. It's not that they didn't believe he could do the miracles. They didn't say, go to Jerusalem and show yourself, and then when you want to pull that rabbit out of the hat, there's no rabbit there, make a fool of yourself. That's not what they were saying. They said, we know you have power and supernatural abilities. Go to Jerusalem if you want power, if you want influence in your life. That's what they're saying. We know at this moment that the signs that Jesus did to reveal himself to his brothers didn't make it that far. Right? They had not pierced their hearts to the true identity of who Jesus was. They had not entrusted themselves to the person of Jesus Christ, just the miracles of Jesus. That's, what, that's what's happening here. Now, before we get all kind of self-righteous, like, look at these idiots. Just think for a moment. Right? You grew up, and your older brother never sinned. You can't run to mom and say, Jesus said or Jesus did. You can't do it. It's always your fault. (laughs) Then all of a sudden, he shows up. He is healing people. He is casting out demons, your half-brother. He is walking on water. He is feeding thousands of people with two small fish and five loaves. And you have an opportunity to be part of his entourage. On the main stage in Jerusalem, tell me you wouldn't go. That's my brother, man. <laughs> I grew up with him. You all can see the book tour, right? My brother Jesus, you know what I mean? Now let me sign that for you. A lot of lime, you know, limelight there. Jesus, you have this wonderful you know, possibilities and opportunities. Uh, you don't know how this works. We'll take you to Jerusalem. We'll show you. You'll get power and influence in Jerusalem. Large crowds, Jewish scholars. Man, that's where to go. Jesus turns around and says, no, I, I, I don't do it that way. I, I don't play by the world's games. They say, show yourself. He says, no, you know what? The world hates me. And the world has to hate me. Look at verse 6. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. Right? So the world hates when evil is exposed, their sin is exposed, they're convicted of their sins, they hate that. But Jesus says the world cannot hate you, it hates me. It doesn't hate you. Why doesn't it hate them? Because they're about the world. That's why. Because at that moment, they all were thinking like the world, acting like the world, seeking self-glory, applause of men, just like the world does. The world doesn't hate people who agree with it. That's what Jesus is saying. But I testify that what it's doing is evil. Now, just to be, just to be sure we're on the same page, when I talk about world. Jesus is not talking about the created order, okay? Genesis 1 and 2, God created the world and said it is good, beautiful, well done. That's, that's the world. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. He's talking about the, the people created, 
that he created, the, the people, that God loves the people of the world. Even though they're wicked and they're broken and they run from him. Remember, we looked at that. People love the world. God loves the world. The world he's talking about here is the worldly system. It, it, it's, the, it's the spirit of the world. It is, it is the idea that everything there is, everything that you see is all there is. We strive for that. We, we want to promote that. We want to promote ourselves and all the things that we get and do. That's the world in which he's talking about. In fact, the word secular comes from the Latin word seculum, meaning timism. Secular is timism. It's about now. All that is now. All that matters now. And what Jesus is saying is, he, he's saying that, that himself and all the followers of him are governed by the system that gives God glory. That there's an eternal perspective. That obeying God, loving God, worshiping God, and, and, and people who do that will be hated. Those who love the unlovable, who are kind to the marginalized, people won't love. But when we choose to obey Jesus, rather than follow the worldly system, follow the, the, the spirit of the world that says, get all you can get for yourself, the world will hate you. Worldliness is unbelief. You guys are thinking like the world. You can go anytime. They love you. They'll accept you, but they'll hate me because I'm not of the world. I'm pointing out the things of this world that are broken and sinful and rebellious. And you know what? They rejected him. Their unbelief, it says. Can you imagine his own brothers? Don't believe him. Now, how many of you can identify, don't raise your hands, with family, friends, and close relatives who want nothing to do with you because of what you're all about? How many of you hold to your values and your convictions and therefore you're left out? Maybe, maybe you stop the drinking orgies and the foul language and the dirty jokes and people don't want nothing to do with you. His own brothers. Now, I say that and I always say the same thing over and over again. We need to be careful that the persecution that we are facing because of our values and purposes and our obedience to Christ is just that. It's for the right source. We're not being left out and excluded and hated because we've joined the jerks for Jesus obnoxious crew. That's not what I'm saying. Please, that's not what I'm saying. May it never be that our rejection comes because there's an air about us that we are superior beings. That somehow we obtain the favor of God because of how moral we are and how well we obey. We do the right thing. You should too. Right? Not, not, not obnoxious jerks, just different. Gracefully and humbly different. Not getting drunk like before, yeah. Not gossiping like before, not laughing at immoral, ungodly jokes anymore. Yes, a different path. Jesus says, don't be surprised, Matthew 10, man. Brothers will deliver up against brothers, man. There'll be wives, there'll be husbands, there'll be family members that want nothing to do with you because of it. It doesn't take the pain away, but when we're rejected for just loving and obeying Jesus, he comes to us in a, in a very, very powerful way. Now, when we get to John 17, we're going to look at being in the world but not of the world and the tension that all of us should be in. There's a tension we live in, people. I'm afraid that sometimes, and let me just talk to you, I'm afraid that sometimes it's not so much that there's an air about us 
and that we're obnoxious for Jesus, although that may apply to you, I think sometimes, and I let the Spirit of God do its conviction, is that we're no different than the world. That we're no different than the world. That rather than being different, we've joined them. And when that's the case, there's only one thing we can do, and that's repent. Say, well, how how do you know that to be true? How do you know, and I thought about that just this week, how do do I know if I am joined the world, if I'm obnoxious, just ask people that you know and love, they'll tell you, hopefully. But how do I know if, if I'm just going along? I came up with three questions. Ask yourself this. Is my faith something that others know about? Are you going to school and work every day and people don't even know you're a Christian because you don't want them to know? That may be an indication. You're just going downstream with everybody else. Maybe. Am I willing to say no to the people I love the most when Jesus says, don't do something, or to do something? And they say, don't do it, and you say, yes, I gotta do it. Jesus said so. Are you willing to do that? Number three, am I looking and praying for opportunities to share Christ with them? If, if your relationship with the world and the people outside of Christendom who don't know Jesus, which everyone should be building relationships with them, if you're afraid or you refuse, don't want to bring anything up spiritual, that could be an indication that you are just going downstream with them. Maybe. So you take that with you. Am I face something they know about? Am I willing to say no if I need to? Am I looking and praying for opportunities to share Christ with them? I'll leave that up to you. But one thing I do know, James, the Lord's half-brother, is in this crew of people who say to Jesus, his brothers, go to the feast. And Jesus says, I'm not about the world. You go because you're about the world. James came to faith in Jesus Christ and was converted to Christianity and repented of that sin. And I'll tell you how I know. James chapter 4, same guy. Do you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Okay, he's not talking about befriending non-Christians. He is talking about joining in the spirit of the world, the idea that there is no God, there is no Christ, there is no uh, uh, obeying of the Lord. You're an enemy of God. You can't have it either way. Jesus tells him in verse 8, listen, you guys go. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet come. After this, he remained in Galilee, verse 10. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then also, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. Jesus leaves Galilee at a time when most people have already left. Roads are probably quiet. Luke 9, as I read before, later on it says that after he went toward Jerusalem, he went to Samaria, another place the Jews wouldn't go. So you could see he's not going to go uh, at a time in which all the fanfare was there. He was going up privately. Now, you may read that at first glance and say, did Jesus just lie to his brothers? You go, I'm not going. And then they like turn the corner, he's waiting. Okay. Obviously not. Jesus does not lie. Okay? Jesus does not lie. Now, the way to understand this passage, the way to really know it is, is, let me just show you something. When it says, my time has not come, my time, that, that, is, that is a different word than my hour. 
The NIV, if you have an NIV, the time and the hour are, uh, they use the same word time for hour. ESV has the change. It changes, it uses time and it uses hour. And let me, let me break it down for you. Throughout the gospel according to John, Jesus says, my hour has not come. He said to his mother in, in, in John 2. He says to his disciples in John 7, John 12, my hour has not come. My time has not come. That word is hurrah. H-A-O-R-A. It talks to a specific event that was about to take place. And when he talks about my time and my hour, he's talking about the cross. He's talking about going to the cross, his, his crucifixion, his resurrection. That time has not come. That hour has not come. That is not what Jesus says here. What Jesus says here is kateros, K-A-D-I-R-O-S. He means my opportunity has not come yet. That's very important. Because what Jesus is saying is, my opportunity is not here yet. I'm waiting for the Father to send me. You go, your time, you're not waiting on him like I am waiting on him. And you notice the contrast. It's not just about the time you go and then I'm going to go later on. It's not saying I'm never going to go. It's not only the time, but it's the way in which they went. One went with all the fanfare with the rest of the crowd. Jesus waits till the Father tells him to go and then... Signal, we'll see halfway during the feast he goes, and goes in the quiet, cognito way to Jerusalem. And what you see here is that the father's appointment, when he should go, how he should go, was about all of what Jesus did. That's what Jesus was on those divine appointments, following the will of his father each and every step of the, de- of the way. He's not going to the feast when they say he should go or the way he should go. He's going to go when the father sends him and how the father sends him. That's what he's saying. Now, he's, he's willing to go and die. That's what he came for. But not at their timing and not in their way. Okay, you got that? Um, John Calvin said it very succinctly. He said, although Christ avoided dangers... He did not turn aside a hair's breadth from the course of his duty, end quote. You go, you can go in the limelight, you go the way you think you want to go, the world can't hate you, I'm waiting for the Father's appointed time for me, and I'm going privately. And then Jesus goes, okay? So the siblings. Now look at the search, look what happens there. The Jews were looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, oh, he's a good man. Others said, nah, he's deceiving. He's, lead, he's misleading the people. So I think it's safe to say that Jesus' disciples are there. The brothers show up. The authorities are like, where is he? You know, is he with you guys? He's been in Galilee. We really can't find him up there. But now we're hoping at this festival, all the Jews got to come. We hope he shows up. And when he shows up, we're going to get him. Where is he? And before he shows up, there's this muttering going on. I like that word. We don't use it often. We do it all the time. It's called complaining. But we don't use it muttering. So you can use that this week. You know, stop muttering. You know what I mean? Seems like a cool word, right? We're complaining. They're grumbling. Some are going, you know what? He's a good man. He reminds me of Mr. Rogers. He's a good guy. You know, he held grandma's back the other day. You know, he, we were hungry. And 80% of all our work goes towards food he just fed us so we could work only one hour a day now. What a good guy. That is a good guy right there. And that's what some people think even today. He's such a, he, he's such a good teacher. 
There's so many things in the Bible that are just really smart. We should love people. That's great. What, and Jesus said that. He was a good guy. C.S. Lewis, I think, his famous quote, one time agnostic, the late C.S. Lewis, Cambridge University, said this, sums it up beautifully. He says, he's talking about teaching about Jesus, telling people about Jesus. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish, stupid, I'll add that, things that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a good moral teacher, just a good guy, but I don't want to accept him as this claim to be God. That is one thing we must not say, he says. A man who is merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He's either a lunatic on the level of a man who says he's a poached egg, or he's from the devil himself from hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord our God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a good man, a great moral teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That's what we see going on here. He's not just a good guy. His claim to be the eternal son of God has the right and reign and rule over our lives if he says who he says he is, and he is that. Then some say, you know what? He's misleading people. He's a good man, he's misleading people. He's drawing people away. According to Deuteronomy, any man who draws people away from the Lord thy God should be stoned to death. Let's kill him. Once again, it's not about, you know, who is this Jesus? Let's find out. No, he's a miracle worker. He's leading people astray. He's just a good guy. Let's kill him. Now, I, before, we, before we conclude this point, I want to see something here. Look at verse 13. It's not so much what he said, but Why? Not what was said, but why. Look what verse 13 says. Yet, in the midst of this confusion, who this Jesus really is, for fear of the Jews, no one spoke. No one spoke openly. Hmm. There's this curiosity. There's this confusion. There's this muttering going on. There's this whispering going on. But no one wanted to say anything. Why? Because of fear. Hmm. Fear. Family, let me tell you, there's a, there's a negative and positive aspect to fear. Okay? Negatively, when you, when you fear, you fear harm, you feel someone's going to hurt you, you feel threatened. The positive side of fear is when you come into someone that you reverence and that you awe, someone inspiring, that, that, that is just an awe-forsaken kind of, whether it's, whether it's a place like Grand Canyon, there's this reverence. You're in a restaurant, you you look up, and someone that you highly respect, world-renowned, is sitting next to you. There's sort of a quiver going inside, right? In negative fear, you're afraid of someone who might harm you. In positive fear, you're afraid you're going to do something stupid and look like an idiot in front of them, right? Negative fear is about self. I'm afraid I want to hold, you know, I want to just... Protect myself. Positive fear is about the other person, what they think. Fear is also extremely um, uh, captivating. The other day, my wife's not here, she's teaching. She won't get mad anyway. But right before the winter came out, she came running in the house, man. This snake came out of my um, 
right by the garage door and came like in the garage door, like wanted to come in the house. Deathly afraid of snakes. I don't like them myself, to be quite honest, either. But let me tell you, her gardening for the day was over. <laughs> I went after it with a, I don't know if I, I don't know. I, I was trying to kill it. I was scared of myself, I got to be honest. Um, it's this little gardening snake, probably couldn't hurt me, but I don't know. It's just, it's just squirrely. He ran back in the hole in which he came. I'm sure he was twice as afraid as me as I was of him. My wife's like, oh, gardening done for the day. Like, he's gone. No, I, I no, no. You know, every day, you know, for the next week, she's like looking at the hole. You know, like, I, I don't think he's coming back. I don't know. But it's captivating. You know, being fearful is captivating. You know, I'm afraid of heights. I get up on the roof, I'm like frozen. I, I'm captivated. You see, the thing that you are afraid of, the thing that captivates and dominates your heart. Now, look at the text. The people in our text feared man, not God. They were afraid for their own skin. They were captivated by what others would say. They were afraid of what they may look like to the other religious leaders of that day, maybe kicked out of the synagogue if they believed on Jesus. Family, they too were seeking self-glory. No, not in the sense of throwing Jesus on your shoulders and marching him into town saying, it is my brother. But they were being dominated and captivated under the control of what other people think, not what God thought. You see, in God-centered, healthy fear, your mind is captivated. It's constantly thinking on the one in whom you are afraid of, excuse me, you are fearful of, but it's because he's the God of your redemption. He's the God who loves you. He doesn't terrorize you. He frees you, and you're captivated by his love and his grace. That's what the fear of the Lord is, being dominated and captivated under the control of the one who loves you. And everything in your life is centered on him. Life centered on God produces joy and awe and wonder before the majesty and greatness of all who God is and all that he has done. But many times our hearts are afraid. It reveals to us what we're actually seeking glory in. What you're actually living for. These folks were afraid of man, not God. Self-glory, not God's glory. Look at verse 14. Jesus shows up in the middle of the feast. He's teaching. In the temple, verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is this man doing all this? How, he has no learning. When has he ever, he never even studied. So Jesus shows up a couple of days into it. He's in the temple court, probably not in the, in the main temple building, but the outer courts, maybe the court of the Gentiles, the court of the Israelites, court of the women, and he's teaching. It says, how did he get his learning? That literally means learned letters. It's the sacred writing. Okay, so that, they're saying, you never went to Hebrew seminary. You were never taught under the famous rabbis. Where are you getting such command of scripture? How are you getting to know this? Now, let me ask you a question. As I was reading this, I'm thinking, do you think, up to this point, let me ask you, do you think that when they walked in the temple and they saw Jesus' command of scripture, his content, his character, his authority, and they said, where did this guy get this from? Did they look at each other and go, let's sit down and be quiet because he's teaching and man, he's good. I don't think so. I think they said, went in and go, who's this guy think he is? Look at the crowds. Look at the command of scripture. He has no training. How dare he take the limelight from us? We're the teachers of Israel. That's what I think. I think they too were seeking their own glory. I think they too were people that you know, call them know-it-alls. You ever know a know-it-all? 
Don't look to your left and right. Straight ahead. Like, what do you think? Your name is Google? Think you know everything? There's an elderly woman called to a witness stand from an attorney. Know-it-all grandmother. The lawyer came to her and said, do you know who I am? And she responded, yes, I know you, Mr. Williams. He's a DA. I've known you since you were a little young boy, and frankly, you've been a big disappointment to me. You lie, you cheat on your wife, you manipulate people, you talk behind their backs, you, you, you think you're a rising big shot, you got brains, you think you're such a smart aleck, you're nothing but a two-bit paper push. Yes, I know you. The lawyer was stunned, didn't know what to do. He pointed across the room to, to the defense attorney and said, well, do you know him? And she said, oh, I know him too. That's Mr. Bradley. Since he was a youngster, him too, I babysat for him as parents. He too has been a real disappointment to me. He's lazy, he's a bigot. His drinking problem, the man can't build normal relationship. His law practice is a joke. Yeah, I know him. At that point, the judge is like, both of you guys come up here. <laughs> they lean over. He goes, if either of you ask her if she knows me, I'm throwing you in jail. <laughs> Someone who knows everything about everyone, there's nothing you could tell them. And there is Jesus in the midst of the synagogue teaching with authority. Teaching with a, who is this guy? He's a good man. No, he's a deceiver. He's teaching. I'm not going to say anything. I don't want anyone to be mad at me. I'm not going to say anything because who does he think he is? I'm the teacher of Israel. See what the pattern is? Look at, look what they were searching. They were seeking, excuse me. Jesus answers them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now, to understand that rabbis in that day didn't, were not, no one really appreciated the rabbis in that day having their own teaching. They weren't going to set up and say, I have this new thing from God. That was not, that may be today. You have people saying, oh yeah, the church is wrong for 2,000 years, Right? But in those days, what they would do is they would learn from certain rabbis and quote teachers and rabbis. And the more you quoted, the more you understood their teaching and their perspectives, the greater you were. And Jesus like, you know what? It's not about what other people have said. I have right from the Father. I, I'm not speaking on rabbi so-and-so. I'm not speaking on that. My authority comes from him who sent me. And if you were going to do his will, you would understand that. The Father sent me, right? It's not this subjectional, personal opinion, but what's been stowed upon him is God himself as Jesus lived on mission. Again, Jesus sent of God. We see that over and over again. And what I want to do, we're going to get back to that in, in a couple of weeks, but look at verse 18 with me, okay? If you do the will of the Father, you'll know that I'm sent from him. And then he says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks what? His own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, sent him is true. And there is no falsehood in him. You see that? That's the crux. That's the bottom line, what we've been talking about. And that is glory. John gives us insight into what's going on. Jesus' own brothers were seeking, glory seeking, wanting Jesus to expand his miracle and his, 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 his signed uh, circuit and be seen by the city and by people and be applauded by men. 
They wanted influence, they wanted power, they wanted prestige, they wanted self-glory. The people in Israel were at odds with one another. There was confusion, but one thing they both had was fear. Fear of being put out. Self-glory revealed itself in self-protection. The religious leaders are still angry, holding on to hatred and bitterness for months, expressing their own self-glory through their astonishment that someone would have the nerve to teach in the synagogue. Jesus was right. Jesus was right. John chapter 5, verse 43. Jot that down. John chapter 5, verse 43. Listen, family. Give me two more minutes. Listen to this verse. I have come, Jesus says, in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Goes on to say, how can you believe Jesus says, how can you believe? How can you trust when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do you see it? You see what's going on? Each and every one of them at the moment cannot, will not believe because the foundation of their hearts, the core of their hearts, their will, their affection is to be praised by others to be approved by others, to find their significance and value and personhood in others. Self-glory, other glory, not God glory. Pride and self-glory, its core is human approval. Jesus is saying, listen, pride, self-exaltation, self-glory, self-promotion, human approval, When those things are what you want, there cannot be faith. There cannot be faith. Faith at its very essence is the abandonment of self and a humble acceptance and gladness of the God of mercy and grace. That is what the brothers could not see. That is what the crowd could not see. That is what the religious leaders could not see is the grace of God and the emptiness of themselves. The root of their joy was the praise of others, the self-exaltation, not the grace of God. Piper writes, the mark of truth, because that's what he's talking about, truth, is God-exaltation, not self-exaltation. Indeed, God-exaltation at the expense of self-humiliation. That's Jesus. If the brothers are going to believe in Jesus, he writes, they must believe in the one who, for the glory of God, chooses to be identified, excuse me, chooses to be infinitely shamed by a human crowd and calls others to take up their cross, end quote. You see what he's saying? He's saying that all the crowd, the religious leaders, the brothers, what they wanted is acclamation, but what Jesus was going to the cross, what Jesus was doing was showing the glory, the value, the incalculable worth of God and his love at the cross. And that's not what they wanted. On the night before Jesus dies, it says in John 12, Now is my soul troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. That's the cross. But for this purpose, I have come for this hour, for this moment. Father, glorify your name. And you know what happened then? The Bible said the voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's why Jesus came. To be despised and rejected, scorned and shamed. To display on the cross the glory of the Father. The 
Brothers didn't believe it. And family, let me close with this. When the gospel of grace and the good news of Jesus, when we take a good and honest and true look at the cross of Calvary, it will completely humble you and explode in an adoration of joy and exaltation to the glory of God. That's how you know you understand the gospel. Because I find my value, my worth, and my significance in all that Christ has done for me, then I will know God's glory. Seeking God's glory results in my ultimate joy. The religious leaders, relying on their knowledge of the law-keeping, self-glory. The brothers, looking for accolades. The crowd, self-glory. But they could not have faith because they sought for themselves their own accolades and the accolades of others. Jesus today says, come. Oh, let me read one more verse, 1 Corinthians 1.18. For the word of the cross is folly. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. I don't need salvation. I don't need grace. I don't need justification. I could do it myself. Let me take center stage. Let me try and do it my own way. My own good deeds, my own works, my rebellion, my my obedience, whatever it is. Don't tell me about grace. Don't tell me I got to humble myself. Don't tell me there's nothing in me to warrant my salvation. Jesus says everything. Give up everything because I gave up everything for you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power, dare I say, 2 Corinthians 4, the glory of God. When the gospel comes into your life, when God's love and grace has you captivated and you begin to see, embrace, and treasure Christ above all earthly treasures, the glory and the beauty and the majesty and the value and the worth of Christ, you are empty. And then you are full in him. Self-forgetfulness for his glory. Some of you have got to get to that place. Stop seeking yourself glory and things of this world come to Jesus. He will fill you. He will give you that in which you are lacking, but you have to empty yourself so that he can fill you with his beauty and glory and forgiveness. Let's pray. Father, it is just something that cross-grains everything. We've taught in this world that we must come and empty ourselves, not pat ourselves on the back, not get accolades from others, but to come to hear you say, forgiven, my child, come into my family. Father, help us, please, not just today, but every day, to empty ourselves, to pick up our cross, to lose ourselves so that we may find you and have eternal life. It's a battle every day for me. And Lord, I know it's a battle for many of us. Help us to get out of our own way so that you would fill us with your beauty, that we would see your value and worth above everything this world will offer us. And Lord, may we take that truth and your beauty into a world, proclaim Christ. As Paul said, I have nothing else to say but Christ and him crucified. Send us on mission, Lord, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.